0: Yeah, if you remember, one of the first things that we did in this class was to talk about what, why do we even want to study history? What's the importance of studying history? And we talked about all the different ways that people have mangled it over the years and yet said, yeah, this is history. And and it's really important that we understand what actually happened so that we can have not only a better sense of that, but we can and we can understand how to apply all that. That's just me. I don't know. Anyway, we're finishing off this sort of, proto-Age of Enlightenment. We were going to finish off last week, and we didn't. So, uh, but we had a really good conversation. But let me just remind us of where we were at from last week. 1642, yeah, this first English Civil War. And, and sometimes when we think of Civil War, we, we have this impression that we started that idea in the 1800s. It been the Civil War with a big C. You know, that's us. That's 1860s. Yeah, 220 years before the British were doing it. Um, Charles I... Scottish-speaking Trilizars, Charles I, son of James, uh, becomes the new king of England, was high Anglican, wanted a very Catholic sort of Church of England. And so he had instituted things like big altars where before they'd had um, tables for a communion. You go, nope, now it's an altar to do a sacrifice on. We're going to go back to genuflecting and, and, uh, and making the sign of the cross. We're going to go back to reading the Apocrypha and the services. We're going to... <laughs> Stop it! Uh, all these different things to kind of Catholicize the services. They even included, it really impressed the importance of, of going back to a more Arminian theology that says you have to, you have to keep doing your, these worship acts, you have to keep doing rituals in order to maintain your salvation. If you ever get excommunicated so that you can no longer take communion, you lose your salvation. Um, all these different things. As you can imagine, as we talked about last time, this growing Puritan movement, this growing Calvinist movement in, in England kind of balked at this. And now in England, uh, well, here I'll back up and say, we talked about last week dissenters like William Prynne got their ears chopped off, which is interesting because he had been a devout roundhead, and we had talked about what that, that, that phrase meant last week, a Puritan who said it's ridiculous to wear all these long hairs and wigs, which is where we get the term big wig, the bigger your wig, the more important you are. It's like, instead of, instead of being like that, no, you should keep your hair short. What? It was such a bad fad. It was a ridiculous (laughs) fad. Yeah. Who, who sits there and says, what you want to do is wear this gigantic wig that has, like, mice living in it, seriously, um, and powder your face and wear lipstick and beauty spots, see the little beauty spots, and a lot of silk because then you look like a man. It's like, not so much. Nobody looks good this way. Anyway, uh, but th- but the, the roundhead said, "Oh, well, this is ridiculous! I don't want to do this. We want to keep our hair cut short." And yet he ended up growing out his hair long to try to cover the fact that he had no ears. So, well, ironic. Anyway, the Scottish, being Presbyterians, say, "That's it. We're fighting against Charles I. Rebellion against Charles I." So Charles raises taxes, but he hadn't called a parliament in years and over a decade. If you remember, parliaments were usually called for, like, a season. You, you call them, and, and, and for, like, a year, they hold, they hold office, and then they disband, and you have to call a new parliament later on. They didn't, There was no standing parliament. So he calls a parliament, and this one ends up standing for, like, 20 years. So they'll refer to it as the long parliament. This one's stuck around forever. Um, and the parliament, instead of just going, sure, Charles, we'll raise taxes for you, we'll raise an army for you, and you'll go fight the Scottish, parliament says you know what, I I think you're actually wrong. I think you and your agents have done some bad things here. You're bad for England, and we stand against you. So Charles in 1642 brought troops in to arrest some members of Parliament, and the Speaker of Parliament said, no, I'm not giving them up, because I don't serve the king, I serve Parliament. I serve the people of England. Kind of a huge deal, right? Pretty gigantic deal to say, To serve England, I have to stand (coughs) against its king. That was a massive paradox. Excuse me. That's all right. So you get this civil war that starts between the Puritan, Protestant, Calvinist parliamentarians and the Anglican royalists following Charles. That's kind of where we left off last week. All right, 1644. We're We're starting off this civil war. And Parliament. says, since we are a Parliament, since we are in session, since we get to make laws, be what with being Parliament, and the king even called us, so we even have a royal mandate to be making laws, let's make some laws. So they're like, we're going to be all Puritan. We're going to call this Assembly of Theologians at Westminster. We're going to get them together, and we're going to say, fix the Church of England. Because we get to, because we're Parliament. So what do we need to do? And so part of the reform at this Westminster Assembly makes a British law that only the classic Hebrew canon and the New Testament can be read at services. We've got that established canon that Jesus would have had, the Hebrew canon the Old Testament, right? And the New Testament that we're all familiar with. Exactly what they decided at Chalcedon. What does that do? Yeah. This kicks out the Apocrypha, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like you're specifically angling for the Apocrypha, but you go, what did Jesus have as an Old Testament? And what do we agree on as a New Testament? That's by law what can be read. You do not read anything else. And everybody goes, okay, what that means is this Apocrypha which, which even in Jesus' time they would not have tacked on as canon, that uh, even when Jerome made his Vulgate Bible, he put it on as an appendix going, well, it's not canon, but you should probably read this, too. Nope. That cannot be read in services now. You, by law, they've figured out how to make people have a better sense of Christianity. Is that a, that a good way of doing it? Bad way of doing it? Good thing? Bad thing? What's the pro of this? Everybody's learning uh, the same thing. Okay. Everybody's learning the same thing. What else is another pro? fact oh, really uh, according to them, really, isn't scripture? So now we'll be part of it. Yeah, according to Chalcedon, according to um, Jerome, according to the the Rabbis of Jesus time, the Apocrypha wasn't canon. Okay. So, okay, what's the negative of this? Is there it Makes an... the king mad. Yeah, it does it does torque off the king? It makes the king mad. What else? It also, to off Catholics. There aren't that many floating around necessarily in England at this time, but yes, it would it would bug them too. But get to where when you're told you can't do something that makes you want to do it more. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there, there's a black market for finding little copies of the Apocrypha floating around. Hey, you want to buy an Apocrypha? You know, I'm sure that there's stuff like that. And <laughs> some but, history, loss some perspective. Oh yeah, there's a reason why Jerome put it in there. He's like, this is this is good stuff. Should it be read as scripture on a, on a Sunday morning? No, I agree with that. But should you legally declare this? Should, the, should the, the state decide what happens in a church service? And do you remove the apocrypha entirely from existence by doing this? There's some danger in that. Hello. Oh 1646. The Westminster Assembly goes, All right, we're still sitting. We're still around. We've been here for two years. We've been working on this. We're going to publish some standards. We're not just kicking out the apocrypha. And so Charles has been captured and imprisoned in 1646. That's 4 years into the civil war it's over. Puritans squarely in charge. The Westminster Assembly goes. That's it. We can do whatever we want now. So they decided to create the Westminster Standards for the Church of England to enforce right doctrine and practice. Anybody know some of the parts of the Westminster Standards for the Church of England? They create something called the Westminster Catechism, the short and the long catechism, and the Westminster Confession. Anybody ever hear of the Westminster Confession? Oh, see, not that either. Okay, good. What's the Westminster Confession? Anybody know? Okay. It's what they believe in Westminster. Yeah, they Well, yes. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a doctrinal statement Um, And and the Church of Scotland and the Church of Australia still use it as their doctrinal statement for their churches today. But Presbyterians worldwide go, booyah, this is what we love. This. This thing right here. This is awesome. Okay. It's not just a statement of faith. I mean, our church has a statement of faith, right? it's It's one page long. It's got nifty stuff in there. We kept it very succinct. We worked really hard on it. I like it. This is a bit more. To call it just a statement of faith... It's almost a, a disservice, and, and today, where you can go on any website and just get, a, you know, the bulleted six statements of faith from any church. It's got 33 chapters in it, and each of the chapters is like a page long with paragraphs and stuff. Um, and it's it's an exposition of Calvinist theology. Um, it's not just listing some some things like we believe um, in baptism of infants or we believe in uh, God's predestination. You could put that as a bullet point, but that's not the way they do it. For instance, um, chapters 3, 5, 9, and 10 explain and, 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 and hit different aspects of God's predestination. And it's actually very helpful to understand, um, especially if you didn't grow up with this, especially if you're coming out from more of an Arminian standpoint or just never really thought about it. Things like, we have free will, it argues, uh, that is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to good or evil you've got absolutely good free will. You can do whatever you, whatever you want to. Um, but even though you have free will, God, quote, has appointed the elect unto glory. He's determined since before the beginning of time that there are going to be some people who are going to be saved. And so from the beginning of time, those people can set aside to be saved and to live in glory with the Lord. And the rest of mankind, quote, to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So, from the beginning of time, he appointed other people to, uh, to be born, die, and, and go to hell for their sins. Now, you could just leave it at that. That's like a bullet point. And there's a lot of Arminians that sit there and think, well, hey, that doesn't seem fair. B, well, but you've got free will. How, how, does, how do these work together? But the Westminster Confessional helps explain that. It says, all humans are free to act, not, not in whether they choose God or not, because that was predestined since before the beginning of time. What they're free to do is choosing how to act according to their spiritual nature. You can do whatever you want to do. You are completely free within how your nature actually works. So unsaved humans have only a sin nature. All they can do is sin. You can't do anything other than sin because all you've got is a sin nature. The elect have both a sin nature and a redeemed nature and can thus choose to either sin or to do good since the elect still are corrupted, they still have that sin nature bouncing around inside of them, even their non-sinful actions are never perfect. Make sense? Now, some of you are making scrunchy faces. I'm not asking you if you agree with it. What I'm saying is, is, does this help understand what they're getting at here is where they go, no, you have genuinely, honest to goodness, free will, but to act according to your nature. If you're not redeemed, you don't have anything but a sin nature. If you have both majors, you can do either thing. Okay, Donna, you're still making a, fr- a scrunchy face. <laughs> What's <laughs> the scrunchy face? Okay. How so? Before I defend them, I want to know what you. Well, because it's. I mean. I'm not disagreeing with you. Go ahead. You don't have to make an argument. Just what do you? What do you? Well, it just sounds like they're they're saying you're free, but you're not free. I mean, I mean, it, it sounds like they're playing with semantics of fit to push their reasoning? Think of it this way. Um, If I said you're free to roam around, you're free to roam around wherever you want to go. I've locked the doors to the library. So you're free to roam around anywhere in the library that you want to go. If you become a Christian, I unlock the door to the library. You're free to go anywhere in the church building you want to go. Either way, you are genuinely free whether you want to stand by the bookcases, you want to stand by the sink, you want to stand over here. You have freedom to choose whatever you want to do, but within specific corrals. Is the argument that they're making. Now, not every Calvinist is going to argue this. There are some Calvinists that will argue, no, no, no. The um, God has predestined the elect since before the beginning of time, but not the rest of the world. He, he didn't have any predestination for them. They just kind of fall out. It's called, the difference between they t- t- talked about, like, single predestination and double predestination. Single predestination goes, God has pulled aside the elect and predestined them. He doesn't necessarily have a destiny for everybody else. Double predestination says, by definition, if God has predestined these people and not those people, then, in point of practice, he's predestined those people as well. And so, there's different perspectives. Some, uh, I had a seminary prof who said, even your understanding of free will has to be tweaked because you don't really have free will. Because if I say God has predestined you to, he knows everything you're going to do, and he's predestined you since the beginning of time, then everything you do, whether you have a hot dog or pizza for lunch, by definition, God has to know that. And everything else that he's set in motion, he knows what will cause different people to do different things. Everything you do has to be predestined. Not every Calvinist would believe that. So this isn't trying to be a, a, every Calvinist always believes in everything they're saying here. This is the Westminster uh, Confession trying to explain this. Anybody, you, there are a couple of people, Randy's trying desperately not to, not, not to, not to do it, and, and you're biting your lips. So anybody else want to jump in on any of this? I think this could be a blending that we are not able to comprehend at this point. Well, which is the God's a big God and and we can't figure it out argument, which actually, I think, sounds at first blush like you're just throwing it, you know, oh, that's just wimpy. That's what you have to do. At some point you have to use the God's a big God, I'm not sure how this all goes together. Whether you're a biblical Arminian or a biblical Calvinist, at some point, somewhere in the middle of that, you have to go, I'm not exactly sure how we get from, I can do A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z. Exactly what happens in between there, not entirely certain. What? I guess the point of you showing this is more is how they're making the argument. here. Yep. And I—I I guess I can appreciate that they're going a little more in depth. Yep. I don't agree with it, but I appreciate how they're—it's not just throwing something out there without um, any thought behind it, obviously. Exactly. I'll give another one, and, and and you guys know me well enough to go. Okay, I'm not going to agree with them, but I appreciate this argument. Chapter, what, 28, explains why baptism can be administered to infants, because it's something completely different than the Catholics. The Catholic theology says baptism can be administered to infants because you are saved when a priest says you're saved. That's that's Catholic doctrine. If a priest says you go to heaven, you get to go to heaven. Well, technically purgatory, you make your way to heaven. But so, it's, it's the action of the priest. So who cares if you're an adult, or if you're an infant, if you're a vegetable, if you're 900 years old and on your deathbed, who, who cares? It's all, it all, it's all the priest, right? That's Catholic theology. Calvinists came along and said, no, no, we're going to do the same thing, completely different theology. Chuck that theology entirely, totally different theology. It's because baptism isn't tied, and the efficacy of baptism, isn't tied to that moment of time where it's administered. Yes, they would say baptism is crucial for salvation. It's, it's that you, you have to be baptized if you're saved. Having said that, it has nothing to do with that moment where you're actually baptized. It's an emblem of regeneration and becoming a member of Christ's visible church. But, since that member has been elected to be part of the invisible church, since before the beginning of time, who cares when they're actually baptized? That person, Wendy, was an elect of God. She was picked by God to be a Christian since before he had created Adam. So who cares if her baptism for her salvation is when she's an infant, when she's 20, when she's 60. She was essentially a Christian since before Adam. So it has nothing to do with, with the apparent decision to follow Christ. If she's actually following Christ, then she follows Christ, and that baptism is obviously emblematic of that. Which is why you have to have a confirmation later. You have to do confirmation so that you can confirm that she was actually one of the elect. You understand? So, confirmation is not technically, originally, to, to teach young kids about Christ. Confirmation, originally, is the idea of saying, we need to present truth. If it sticks, if the Holy Spirit in you says, yes, this is truth, then obviously you are one of the elect, and that baptism was valid. If it doesn't stick, if you go through confirmation and you go, I don't buy any of this, then you weren't one of the elect, and that baptism was just moistening. So they say, yeah, it's a sin to neglect baptism, But not everybody who gets baptized necessarily is one of the elect. Not everyone who's one of the elect necessarily ends up getting baptized. They should, and it's a sin if they don't. But your election has nothing to do with your baptism, but your baptism is supposed to show regeneration. So if you go through confirmation and it's confirmed that you are not a Christian, it's a darn shame. But do you understand the rationale and the the the, 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 theological backstory of this hard word on a Sunday morning? Theological backstory of this, where they go, your baptism has nothing to do the timing of your baptism has nothing to do with your actual even if scripturally it's supposed to show that you have made a decision for Christ. Fine. But it's showing that you made a decision that you made a decision for Christ thirty years after your baptism because you were predestined to do so Eternity ago. Yes. Yeah? Or so yeah. they are deciding like, whether you're Christian or sure, not. Right, but, th- but they, you, if you're three, it's too early to, for, to see if truth sticks. You can't understand it. But while they still have you floating around as a, as a teenager, and I, at this time, I'm not sure exactly how old you are when you go through confirmation, but they're like, once you get to the point where you're old enough where you can start understanding this thing, we'll, we'll send you through catechism class, through. Uh, what we would now call confirmation to try to confirm all that. And then, but but you still can become a believer later. Yeah, the verbs get weird, but yes, you can become a believer later, but if you become a believer later, you always have been. If you become a believer later on in life, you always have been a believer. Oh. Because you were one of the elect. So since before Adam, you've always been a believer. If you don't become a believer later on in life, you've never been one, nor will you have. Does that imply that you don't need to make any commitment? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, Different theologians have taken that different ways. Um, In general, general, they would say, oh no, you absolutely still have to make that decision because you were predestined to make that decision. You need to choose Christ, but God is the one who chooses Christ through you, in you. Um, But there are some theologians that say, no, it has nothing to do with you just being in the church and do church stuff. God will save you or God will not save you. But your actions cannot save you. So there are some that have gone, and those are extremes, but there are some that have gone so far as to go, personal decisions, who cares? It's not about your personal decision. Like I said, most Calvinists and most Puritans at this time would say, no, you, you, you really do need to make, you need to make a personal decision because God has predestined you to make that personal decision. We're not really debating Calvinism, though. I'm trying to help you to understand that this gives you some good rationales for, for why they they believe the things they believed back then, as Puritans. And were these things happening in um, England going on affecting, like, the New World? And oh, yeah, eventually. I mean, unless Mr. Katesh <coughs> gets brought over, and, and Presbyterian churches and, and, and Puritan churches throughout the New World go, booyah, thank you, now we got something to hang our hat on. Um, Etc. Now, um, ch- gotta you <laughs> chapter 25 explains there can't be a human head for Christ's Catholic i.e. complete church because it's Christ's church right it's not our church it's Christ's church which is why the Pope is by definition quote that antichrist that man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself them th- in the church against Christ and all that is called God unquote by definition the Pope is the antichrist right? Whoa. Westminster Catechism, man. The, the Westminster Confession. You should think, yeah, the Pope is the Antichrist. you got to believe that because there can't be any human head over the church. Okay, yeah, out? Nope. Still in there. Uh, now, some, Well, I should say, a lot of churches that hold this have various degrees of edited versions of this. But, like, the Church of Scotland Church of Australia, you go, nope, this is what we got. <laughs> These nows, we ain't changing nothing. You know, but uh, But, yeah, there's some things that are just not politically correct nowadays, so Other churches tweak it. Or they'll say, you've got to remember the time. Just move along. Don't read chapter 25. Move on. Did the original have a lot of scripture references? I know I've seen some that have scripture references, but I've seen a lot of Westminster Confessions that does not have No, the original didn't, but later on they added scriptural supports for it. In fact, you'll oftentimes see on the cover page, it'll say confession of faith with scriptural supports. So it's like the addendums, the study Bible of the Westminster Confessions, which is interesting because... It it wasn't intended, like we said, just to be a statement of faith. It's oftentimes referred to as the Bible explained. Um, Which makes things a little funky. Because first off, it's really more like a Puritan version of Calvinism explained. Which isn't bad! It might be great! But sometimes it makes people say, oh, this is what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. Well, no, this is what the Westminster Confession says. And it says it very well. And if you're a Puritan version of Calvinist at that time in history, you'll go, nailed it! You're like, that's great! Yeah, but... It, it like, you know, when people say, no, when the Constitution has the take, well, no, not really that letter, but, you know, so... so, so, that. Is, so does that happen like, with, you know, Oh, yeah, that? people will quote the Westminster Confession as if they were quoting Scripture. Um, it's interesting because kind of like people will read Left Behind and say, well, the Bible says... Yeah. Again, I'm not dissing Left Behind. Maybe they got it totally right. But that's what left behind says, not what the Bible says. This is, what, this is what the Westminster Confession says, not what the Bible says. It's dangerous to conflate the two. You should always make sure that you're going back to actual Scripture and figuring out what actual Scripture has to say, right? Anyway, um, second thing, some churches actually encourage reading the Confession and the Catechisms over reading the Bible. Instead of reading the Bible, because this is explaining the Bible better than the Bible explains it. The Bible's just being the Bible. This is the Bible explained. Just very Catholic. Ironic, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, this is, this is actually very Catholic. If you go, well, you don't really need the Bible. you got us to interpret it for you. you go, that's exactly what you just said the Antichrist was doing. Um, but it is, it is interesting, because they will say, to prevent errors with your own flawed interpretation of Scripture, you ought to just read the Westminster Confession. And I actually heard a Presbyterian minister say this in a service. Sat there in a Presbyterian service with all the pews had the Westminster Confession. in, in the pew, like we put Bibles and and uh, and hymnals in our in our pews, they had Westminster Confession and hymnals in their in their in their pews. And the pastor actually said, "You know, don't mess yourself up. Just read the Westminster Confession. That will explain it." And I, I'm like, "Did you, did you actually just say what I thought?" I actually had to turn to the person next to me. And I'm like. Did he just say, don't read your Bible, read the Westminster Confession instead? And she's like, yep. So uh, this happens. Again, I'm not saying that this is what everybody says. I'm just saying this can go funky. Uh, I grew up with a Heidelberg Catechism. Not this one. Heidelberg, uh, Much better. Dutch, yeah, yep. but, uh, <laughs> it's divided into 52 Lord's Days. So oh. one set for every Sunday, we would... In the morning service have a, a regular sermon on whatever you want, and the evening service was that would be Interesting. That's actually a clever way of doing it because you get through your statement of faith every year. every year. I like that. Though again, you run into that same potential problem that you start potentially treating it as scripture. Not necessarily. I mean if you do it as we're not doing a Bible study, we're doing like a, a, a theology study, a doctrinal thing every every Sunday night. But you can potentially walk into that same issue. But I kind of like the, the setup of that. Can I ask you uh, a question? Yes. So is it because I grew like, up um, Catholic? So do they do Christmas? Right, do they have it in the winter? Yeah. Yeah. For it, and again, different churches do it differently. Some um, Catholics say uh, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Puritans said you need to be baptized in order to be saved, though your salvation isn't based on the baptism. Um, other, even even specifically Calvinistic churches will say, no, 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 no. It's it's more your christening is more like a wet dedication. It's it's kind of it's very similar to what we're doing when we dedicate an infant here, saying the parents are dedicating this child to the Lord. We're using baptismal imagery and verbiage, but we're essentially saying. We're, we're dedicating this child to the Lord. So I mean, you kind of have to look at whatever church you're dealing with and, and, and idiosyncratically figure out what the what the theology is behind that. Anyway, around this time, speaking of interpretive theology, you have this radical version of Puritanism that's spinning off so far from Puritanism that it's no longer Puritanism. <laughs> which is interesting when you do that. You're just like, oh, we're taking it to the right, but we're taking it so far to the right, we end up on the left again. Remember, we've talked about that, huh? You go around the horn, and all of a sudden, you're you're on the other side. George Fox completely agrees that only God... Pardon me? Okay. God, only God can oversee the church, right? Just like the Westminster Confession says. So he's he's uncomfortable with the Westminster Confession. Because he's like, you guys are putting a human thing over God. You're saying this human thing is even over Scripture. So 1643, an inner voice compels him to go out and, and rethink all of this. And he talks to all these different theologians. He debates all sorts of different things. Within four years, he's, he's wandering the countryside preaching that man should, quote, tremble at the word of the Lord, unquote. In fact, that's why years later, a judge, trying him for heresy, calls him and his followers Quakers, because they quake before the Lord. You should only tremble before God. And so derisively, they're called Quakers in the sticks. Um, the official name is the Religious Society of Friends. Nobody ever calls them that. They're Quakers, you know. Just like it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, it's Mormons. Everybody just calls them Mormons. Everybody just calls them Quakers. And by now, they're not upset with them. <coughs> but they say God isn't to be found in church buildings alone. Everybody's looking for God in church buildings, and they say no, He's everywhere. You should seek Him everywhere. Church buildings are just a convenience. It's just where the church meets. But that's not where God hangs out. And we go, yay! God isn't to be found in the Bible alone. You okay? No, I mean, I, yes, God is. God's truth is in Scripture. He can speak to your heart. The sure, through your sure, sure. He's like, oh, the Bible is totally truth, but God isn't confined. The Holy Spirit will teach whatever He wants. And you go, okay, but that's with Perio. You yep. know, He's never going to teach anything contrary to Scripture, but okay. And so most Quakers believe in what they refer to as continuing revelation, which is kind of like the Church of Christ believes today, that God didn't just end up and talking in revelation. He's constantly bringing in new truths, new doctrines, new revelation, changing revelation, etc. And we go, okay, see, now you're losing me. Now, now you're going contrary to Scripture, and that's problematic. This has led to a lot of different splits. There's a gazillion different kinds of Quakers because different groups will go, well, God's leading me to believe this. Yeah. No, he isn't. He so is. No, he isn't. No, yes. Is. Okay, that's it. Boom. We can't worship together. And then you, you start this whole new church, and then somebody else goes, and God says we should paint the church plaid. I don't think we should. Yeah, God said so. Now, I talked with God, and he said, no. Boom. Church split. Gospel according to Richard. Gospel according to Richard. That's right. See, God is an inner light that is leading all men, guiding all people to himself, but in different sorts of ways. This light technically overrules the Bible. Because the Bible is a translated human interpretation of God's inner light. You're just getting God's inner light directly. So if if we say that the Bible has strength because the Bible is God's inner light speaking to the Bible writers, you go, know, well, that's still translated through John, and then John's Greek is now translated into our English. That's a couple of levels of Filtering before it gets to me. If I genuinely believe that the Bible is good because God is inhabiting it, then how much more important is it that God inhabits me? That's a direct line to God. So technically, if God's inner voice tells you something that goes contrary to scripture, you should trust God's inner voice. Again, you're a good interpreter. Yes, yeah, yeah, that was yeah. it. and now, we're, now we go back to, you, you don't need a Westminster Confession, because you need yeah. to, you should not be running around on your own. Okay, some Quakers have thus become Universalists, because they go, everybody's got God's life. Everybody's got it inside of them, so everybody's going to be saved. Other Quakers go, nope, 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 that's too far. You've, you've now abandoned the Bible. Maybe we should go back to one of them confessions. They split off to form their own congregations. But most Quakers see this as this truth as demanding pacifism. How can I snuff out God's light in another human being? Right? Which is a completely different reason for why Anabaptists are pacifists, right? Anabaptists are pacifists because they're like, I don't get to decide whose life to take. That's God's job. If God himself, they're like Essenes, they're like, if God himself leads us into battle, we'll go into battle. But if it's not God leading me into battle, who am I to say I get to kill another human being? You go, well, they're going to kill you and send me to heaven. Why would I prevent that by sending them to hell? No, I I don't get to make that judgment call. I don't have the authority. These guys say, no, 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 it's because God's light is inside them. Every human being is a brother or a sister. So people sometimes confuse Quakers with the Amish or, or, or Mennonites, and you go, no. Some of the same actions... Completely different rationale. But this is why uh, the, the Quakers actually served on the battlefield as battlefield medics. They adopted this symbol here uh, during the Franco-Prussian War, um, and then officially adopted it in World War One to differentiate them from the Red Cross. Red Cross is a secular organization running around helping people on the battlefield. Quakers are a religious organization running around helping people on the battlefield. So they took a completely different symbol. In what country is this? George Fox from? Oh, England. Yep, decidedly England. Um, Oh, this also means Quakers are functionally egalitarian. Because they're like, if everybody has the light of God in them, that means male and female, right? Um, Old people, young people, we all have God's light in us. Fox actually debated with a lot of other Puritan theologians that women had souls, which was a debate amongst a lot of the early Puritans. Women don't have souls. Women are right. an appendage of their husbands, an appendage of their fathers. You don't have souls. You're kind of tacked along with everybody else. By everybody else, I mean guys. You're fine with that, right? Sounds good. Sounds good to you. <laughs> Randy, you just got re- you just got recorded, man. Okay, Lord. Forty minutes into it. Here to tell me That's right. There you good, good call. Good oh, save. That's wow. also recorded. <laughs> Fox's own wife was a lay preacher, running around preaching. So I mean, it's they had a very they had a very unique take on things. They also believe that God isn't controlled by clergy or by courts. So most Quakers, you like, we don't have any clergy. We don't have any pastors or things. Everybody's a lay leader. Sometimes they even say. It would be wrong to organize a service. We shouldn't plan anything, ever. It should always be led by the Spirit. So they have something called unprogrammed worship, which entails silence or waiting. You just sit there and wait until somebody has a word from God, somebody has a song. Sometimes you sit for an entire hour, nobody says nothing. At which point you go, apparently God just wanted silence. Which led to some groups saying, oh, then perhaps the most powerful form of worship is quietism. If the most powerful moment is when God says, I don't want any of you to speak, so I don't give any of you a word, there may be quietism, where we just get together and sit there quietly. Not reading, not praying, not thinking, not singing, just listening for God. That is the most powerful form of worship. Now again, you might say, well, that is kind of a powerful form of worship. Their rationale is, you only do what you are prompted by the Holy Spirit at that moment to do. if God is not specifically prompting you to speak, he must want you to be silent. I'm not sure that logically I followed that. I'm not sure that, that in Scripture we're told, by the way, never plan anything. only step where God specifically tells you to step at that moment to step.'m I'm like I'm not, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that God set it up that way. He gave us a mind for a reason um Obviously, there's something to be said for that. Just like with, with anything, you can pull truth from this. Can there be a powerful moment of just silence and worship? Absolutely. Do I agree with their rationale? No. No, I really don't. But this other emphasis on being led by the Spirit, you can argue, kind of paved the way for Pentecostal movements like the Azusa Street revival in the early 20th century, where people said, whatever the Holy Spirit says, that's what we're going to do. And there is power in them. But not if you say, we won't do anything unless specifically prompted. Yes? I don't know if you're going to say it too, but they're huge anti slavery too. Eventually. It was extremely common for Quakers to own slaves in the New World. Women, you say common? It was extremely common for Quakers to own slaves in the New World. They were fairly prosperous, originally big slave owners. Eventually, not. Okay, because they were... Because they became huge. I mean, they mm-hmm. were a huge part of the mm-hmm. protesting incident. But okay. not at this stage. Okay, At okay. this stage, they were all about slaveholding, um, because everybody was at that time. Uh-huh. It wasn't seen as a, as, as a, as a moral issue. Um, no, they also, a lot of times, will feel compelled to get rid of things like communion and baptism. And a wedding ceremony is just like three minutes at the beginning of your worship service. Floyd, do you want to marry Wanda Sue? Yeah, Wanda Sue, you want to marry Floyd? Yeah. Okay. Now let's get back to the wedding ceremony or to the to the worship service. We don't want to make this any bigger than that. You just don't do any kind of ceremony, any kind of structure like so, that. So do they believe slaves had souls then? they debated about women having souls? Um, well, not slaves, but <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> Um. Oh, oh, man. Okay. Again, and again, it kind of depends on the time in history. At this uh-huh. time. Sure, slaves had souls. And you want to save their souls. You don't treat them as, as subhuman, per se. Later on, it became, no, slaves don't have souls. And then it became a moral issue when they went, no, they so do. And then we need to stop slavery. It's a progressive understanding of things. Um, they also, a lot of times, Quakers refuse to acknowledge holy days like Christmas or Easter or Sabbath. They say, every day is the Lord's day. We should treat every day like the Lord. Anyway, um, so, uh, 1648, Mazarin negori- negotiates the Treaty of Westphalia. You remember Mazarin from last week? No. Okay, uh, the lover of the French queen, Anne of Austria, <coughs> and the regent over five-year-old King Louis the Fourteenth. right? Okay, so extremely potent, powerful guy, Mazarin. Because Mazarin is so powerful, he helps... France to grow in power. He has all sorts of political entanglements all over the place and was able to force the Habsburgs to actually stop the Thirty Years' War. He's like, this isn't doing any good. Let's, let's change this. And so they sign a treaty, and it changes all the boundaries in Europe. Some just a little bit, some rather dramatically. In fact, you'll notice Scotland and Ireland have used the Thirty Years' War and all the chaos of it to go, ah, we're free again, you know, because we say we are. England is busy fighting itself, so we're free. Um and again princes are affirming Quius regio ius religio. Remember what that means? Whoever's in charge, that's whose religion this state has. Whoever reigns his religion. That's what we're doing. So if you're if you've got a Lutheran on the throne, congratulations, your kingdom is now Lutheran. Knock yourself out. Switzerland and, and Portugal have officially been declared sovereign states. So Portugal is now doing their own thing again. They're no longer part of Spain. And all the Portuguese go, yay, didn't like them anyway. And then the Thirty Years' War is now officially over, which means that the Age of Enlightenment begins. Everything's going to be totally different now. The world's just a completely different place because Thirty Years' War is over. And everybody said, oh, it's the Age of Enlightenment now. Now we have to change. Pope Innocent did not like the treaty. Uh, he said, I, I, I hate that we essentially lost the war. The whole point was we were going to make everybody ca- Catholic. you got to be Catholic, and now you don't got to be Catholic. Now it's whoever is sitting on the throne. So he declared the treaty, quote, null, void, invalid, iniquitous, unjust, damnable, reprobate, inane, of meaning and effect for all time, unquote. Because I'm the Pope, and nobody listened to him. He had a good thesaurus. He had an awesome thesaurus. Cardinal Thesaurus? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd like some more some more words here. Part of it, though, is that he didn't like Mazarin. Um, so anything Mazarin did was bad. Innocent served King Philip IV of Spain, and yes, do you notice the Habsburg lips and chin growing? Every time you see a new Habsburg, this is getting a little bigger down there. So, King Philip of Spain, uh, Innocent served him, and that's France's chief rival at the time. And so, Mazarin sees Innocent as being that Spanish cardinal, even though Innocent was from Italy. Innocent sees Mazarin as that French cardinal. They don't like each other. In fact, Mazarin tried to block uh, Innocent getting elected as Pope, but didn't get to Rome in time. Came with this French veto going, no, no, no! They're like, oh, already elected. Nuts! Um, so they, they almost went to war uh, at, at one point because uh, Innocent issued a bull against two or three Italian cardinals that ran to France for sanctuary. There were two card- or three cardinals that were the Nephews, of remember Pope Urban, the guy that butted heads with Galileo? He, he made his nephews cardinals in their, like, 20s. First, the, the, the youngest one was literally 20, when he was made cardinal over a bunch of longtime priests and other things. Anyway, they embezzled millions from the church, and they ran to France going, surely Mazarin hates innocent enough that he'll shelter us. Strangely, Mazarin hated innocent enough that he sheltered them. And innocent said a bold going up, I'm going to take away their cardinalship. Um, anybody who, who who hides them is going to be excommunicated. And Mazarin in France said, "Nope, your papal bull has no authority in France." France goes <clears throat> to the Pope. That's it. You don't exist. <laughs> <So French. laughs> That's right. And in fact, we'll send troops to Italy to enforce this if you don't back down. And so Innocent went fine. I backed down and rescinded the bull. Wow rescinded the papal bull. They hated each other. Anyway, 1646, same year that Innocent sent Cardinal Giovanni Rinuccini to Kilkenny, Ireland, uh, with ammunition and weapons and lots of money to fight off the parliamentarians, because they're Puritans, right? And, And Ireland has gained its independence, and it's wanting to be solidly Catholic, and so he's like, here, I'm sending this cardinal with tons of money and stuff, go kill English people. And they were giddy. They loved Rinuccini. In fact, one of Ireland's most well-respected Italian restaurants is called Ristorante Rinuccini. And it has his image on its logo. And it's across the street from Kilkenny Castle. They love this guy. They love the gesture of support from Rome. They're like, this is awesome. Because you get to kill off English. Because you get to kill off English and Rome is giving us money and stuff. The Duke of Ormond tries to broker a truce. Because he knows the parliamentarians are coming. And he says, all right, tell you what, England has agreed to this. If we don't make a big stink, they will let everybody in Ireland still be Catholic. We can have our own private services. We can still own land. We just, we can't have big public services on Sundays. That's it. If we concede that, they'll let us be Catholics. Now, granted, you shouldn't be happy with that as a Catholic. Rintucini says, no, nope, I will excommunicate anybody who agrees to a treaty like that. We will not back down at all. We want freedom! So, chuck that to the wind. That's good, right? That's wisdom. 1648, the second English Civil War breaks out. Charles I escapes captivity and makes a deal with Scotland. If you remember, who started the first English Civil War? (laughs) It was the Scottish, right? The Scottish would go, Oh, I want to be Presbyterian? Oh, that, and, 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 and Charles goes, No, 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 you've got to be my kind of Anglican. And so they fight. Here he says, Nope, you're going to help me. The Scottish are saying, You know, there's a growing anti Presbyterian movement. Presbyterian means what? What's the word Presbyterian pointing back to? Biblical word presbyteros, which means presbyters. Presbyters, presbyters meaning representatives. elders, specifically bishops and stuff. So the Presbyterian is talking about having a hierarchical form of government which the Westminster Confession just said no to, which is ironic because it doesn't say no to it so clearly that Presbyterians nowadays still have a problem with it, but it still technically says no to it. And all the Puritans that put it together are saying no to a hierarchical form of government. The Quakers coming along going, all clergy is bad. Scottish Presbyterians go, I don't like where this is going. This is making me uncomfortable. So I'll tell you what... Um, We will help you back into power if you will guarantee that we can stay Presbyterian. You can be your Anglican if we get to stay to be Presbyterian. Because we're afraid that the Puritans are going to stop us. And he said, sure. So we talked last week about Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell wins decisive victories against the Royalists and the Scottish. And becomes kind of famous for that. And Charles is back into custody really soon. And the long parliament says, we want to renegotiate with the king. I, I know we negotiated with him before, and then he got loose and he did another civil war, but we think we can still work with him. Cromwell says, I don't think we can, and I run the army. I don't think we can work with the king. And I support the parliament so much that I'm going to ignore what the parliament just said. I think we need to, I think we need to try the king for treason, because... He just stood against England. Now, arguably, he's right. From how you define treason and how they're defining the parliament, he's absolutely right. Parliament was running the country. The king said, I'd like to have a foreign power come and help me against parliament. He is correct. <coughs> how he's doing it, where he says, ignore parliament and let's let's try him anyway, and that's not a good thing. So, is he a good guy or a bad guy? You go, yeah, he's right idea wrong way of doing it. Charles says, I refuse to testify, because I refuse to acknowledge the authority of Parliament. You're not the government. I am. How can I be treasonous against me? You're treasonous. You don't exist. I have been ordained by God himself. Remember last week at the I'm a little god on earth. That's what I am. I'm God's vicar on earth. Parliament, you're just a bunch of guys. Who are you? You're nothing. I and mean, that guy over there, he's a barber. Why should I listen to him? I refuse to testify. Five days of trial, three days of which he refused to testify, two days they went, okay, just go away. Find him guilty and sentence him to death. Charles is executed January 30th, 1649. They chop off his head. And it's interesting, it's the middle of winter, what with being January 30th, and so Charles wears two shirts because he says, you know, I'm afraid that if they see me shaking with the cold, they think, they'll think I'm shaking out of fear. And I do not want anybody to say that. So, I want to be bundled up. I want everybody to know I'm not scared of this at all. But this is crucial. This is sense of purpose. This is the first time that a sitting monarch has ever been tried and executed by his subjects. I mean, there have been coups and things, but this is the first time that uh, an entire nation stood up and said, you're treasonous. We're taking you out. We have the authority by law to do this. That is huge. They're not overturning monarchy, per se. But they are overturning this monarch, and that sets a precedent for everything that comes later, right? Yeah. First major action of the Enlightenment changes everything else. Massive, huge, huge thing. What else do you see going on with that? I mean, any other? Why is this such a big, huge deal? Anyone else want to chime in? Other than just hearing me babble? Just hearing. Mm-hmm. So, it takes that out. Well, that and that whole, I was instituted by God himself. That whole, God himself wants me in charge, and whatever I believe, that's what everybody has to believe, because I'm the one that got you. Go, all oh, that goes by the wayside. This isn't just a sociopolitical statement, this is a theological statement. We don't believe you were put there by God, and we don't believe what you believe, simply because you believe it pretty much can only happen in England, right? Because all the other countries don't like so the or the of Um, right. Now, in, in that patchwork quilt that is what we now call Germany, there's all sorts of different ways of doing things, and there are some areas that have councils and stuff, but in terms of, like, the major powers, Spain, France, in fact, France is building the most absolute government that they've ever had. I mean, uh, Louis Fourteenth, the quintessential example of an absolute monarch. That, Everything he wants to do, he gets to do. He wants to he wants to broil babies on the front lawn. He gets to do that because he's the king. So yes, this is a very uniquely English thing. Now, does one of his sons get to be king over past his death Yes! Um, that, that comes up later. Charles II ends up doing the third English Civil War uh, here in, in a bit. But 1649, Oliver Cromwell invades Ireland. Well, okay, I'll go this far, and then I'll end. If you remember, uh, Cardinal Minaschini, they've resisted every treaty, they go, no, we will not work with the English, ha ha ha, we're going to do our thing, right? Um, And they even sign a treaty with Charles II, who's in exile, the the king's son, right? And they're going to support him onto the English throne. They also open their ports to anti-English privateers, Anybody who wants to attack a British ship, knock yourself out. You get to go to an Irish port and be safe. We'll blockade it and protect you. And in their own rebellion of 1641, the Irish Catholics had slaughtered upwards of 10,000 English Protestants that had settled in Ulster. And so so they're very much saying we're doing our own thing. Heck with England. We'll kill anybody that we need to kill. And so Cromwell goes, that's it. I'm invading Ireland. Now... You can, I use the word pretext here because you can make an argument that the main reason he invaded Ireland is because he really, really hated Catholicism. I mean, really, really hated it. And and Ireland is this extremely Catholic nation sitting right across a, a, a a little channel from England. I mean, they used to belong to England just ten years ago, eight years ago. They, we considered them England. And now they're calling themselves Ireland and Catholic and all that kind of stuff. So it was extremely offensive to him that they even existed as such. But you can also say they kind of dug their own grave in terms of how they've been treating the English. If you start going, Ha, ah, you can't get us, we're in charge, and we're totally different from you, and we're going to go kick your shins, you really ought to be able to do that and defend yourself. If you're going to pick a fight, you, you really need to make sure that you win it. They picked a fight with Oliver Cromwell, who had created the best army that, in, that Europe had, and had had in a couple centuries. He created this new model army that was a standing army that was constantly training and could move at a drop of a hat. And you go, if you're going to, if you're going to pick a fight with a religious extremist with an excellent army behind him, you, you better really be able to defend yourself. And they couldn't. So um, next week we're going to start with. Oliver Cromwell invading Ireland. But, Mnuchini, you go, I see what you're trying to do, but you kind of painted them into a corner. When you had the opportunity to actually have a treaty that protected your rights, and then you threw it to the wayside, and then Oliver Cromwell comes in, you're pretty much toast. Oliver Cromwell just doesn't lose. And he's invading your country. Just a long time left still going through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're still going to be going until the 1660s. for the most part. I mean maybe coming in but the Parliament and he is listening to them now or not? About yeah. this, yeah. Okay. Cromwell and I gotta stop. But Cromwell's <laughs> an interesting guy. He considered himself an arch parliamentarian, except sometimes when they did it wrong. <laughs> but but he saw himself as very much Parliament's guy. I'm here for Parliament. in um, in a couple of years they'll even make him Lord Protector of England. Your whole job is to be the guy who protects England and stuff, because you're functionally doing that anyway. He's got a good relationship with Parliament, and again, I'm going to say this is really complicated because some of the stuff where he goes, "You're being dumb, and I'm taking charge," they were being dumb, and so I kind of, I, I even then, I kind of have to respect why he took the reins and said, "I'm taking over here," and yet you can't do that. You can't pick on a on a on a, on a A royal who says, I don't care what Parliament says. And then sometimes say, I don't care what Parliament says. That's that's kind of ill-considered. You know, kind of self-defeating. So I kind of have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with with Cromwell. Because, and we'll talk more about this next week. But this is a guy who, again, genuinely thought he was doing the right thing. Two-thirds of the time he was doing the right thing. Three quarters of the time, he did it in not necessarily good ways. So he's, he's a, he, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Depends on who you ask. People in England talk about Cromwell as this national hero. This awesome, awesome man of God who, like Joshua, was this awesome fighter who, a, who, who bathed everything in prayer, everything in scripture, um, did everything good to love his country. Quintessential Christian warrior of England. Ireland, To this day, still hang effigies of him on on the anniversary of his death. And the worst curse that you can possibly give to anybody in Ireland is, may the curse of Cromwell be upon you. They hate him as, like, the worst human being who's ever lived. Cromwell is Ireland's Hitler. England says Cromwell is a hero of the faith. I, I would actually argue, yeah, he is both, like, the worst horrible tyrant he could be and a hero of the faith. He's David. When we were in um, Cambridge, there was, in the King's College Chapel, you could still see some marks where Conroe came in, and he actually took all the decorative things yep. and destroyed it. So a lot of people don't like him because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm again, sure it depends... It's the same way, I think. I mean, just yeah. it's such a shame all the stuff he destroyed. Yeah. And, and, and it depends on who you talk to, because, like, the Quakers were like, he's got a rock. Even though, even though he was violent, yeah. but they're like, but yeah, he... Tore down, he tore down all that filigree. All, he took all the all the brass out of out, out of the out of all the churches and things, and melted down for cannon. To, it, it, it. but we shouldn't have had that all in the church anyway. I mean, why do we have gold candlesticks while people are starving? He said, "No, enough with that. We're going to distribute this to the poor and things." And you go, yay, well, yeah." Depends. Are you High Church of England, four centuries removed? Then he's an evil man. Are you somebody who appreciates architecture and art? He's a jerk. Are you somebody who is, at that time, who is says, we need more simplicity in worship? Well, praise God, he's an awesome guy. Complicated man. Closing close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the complicatedness of history. I thank you for all the people that have gone before. I thank you for the wisdom that we see in George Fox alongside things that we totally disagree with. I thank you for the wisdom in the Westminster Confession totally alongside people who abuse it. I thank you for the wisdom in Oliver Cromwell, hand in hand with his absolute idiocy in living out a life for Christ. Lord, I pray, help us to to be able to see the complexities of the world that you've given us. And help us to love you, not just in what we do, but in why and how we do it. Help us to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, Ireland!